Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kathy and Melissa. Well, good morning. We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark, Servant and Savior. Uh, this will be the, the last day in that series for a little while. We're going to take a, a break during the month of December as we focus on Christmas. And then in January, we will come back and resume the Gospel of Mark as we finish it up, up into the springtime. Uh, today, we're in the, the 29th week of this series, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, calling today's message, Marriage Masters, Marriage Disasters, from Mark 10, uh, verses 1 through 12. If you've got your Bibles, you want to be in Mark 10 today. You know, every marriage has its share of trials and troubles. But imagine going off on your honeymoon and getting victimized by six major natural disasters. That's what happened to newlyweds Stefan and Erica Svonstrom when they left their home in Stockholm, Sweden for their four-month honeymoon, which began in December of 2010. First, they were stranded in Munich, Germany, when Europe had uh, one of its worst snowstorms in modern history. Finally, they were able to leave, and the couple flew to Australia. They went to the city of Cairns, where they were struck by one of the most ferocious cyclones ever to happen in Australia's modern history. Well, they decided to get out of town and head south across Australia down to Brisbane. But they discovered that the city there had experienced massive flooding. So they traveled across the country to Perth, where they narrowly escaped raging bushfires burning across the continent. So they decided to get off the continent of Australia and they flew to Christchurch, New Zealand. Unfortunately, they arrived just after the city was devastated by a magnitude 6.3 earthquake. Later after that, the couple flew to Japan. But just a few days after their arrival, Tokyo was rocked by Japan's largest earthquake on record. Talk about a crazy honeymoon. The couple returned to Stockholm in March of 2011, breathing a sigh of relief to be home safely. Looking back on the trip, Mr. Svonstrom said, to say we were unlucky with the weather doesn't really cover it. It's so absurd now that all we can do is laugh about it. But Mr. Svonstrom noted that the marriage was still going strong. He said, we've certainly experienced more than our fair share of catastrophes, but the most important thing is that we're together and happy. And so despite numerous natural disasters, we could say that the Svonstrom's marriage would fall into the category of a master relationship rather than a disaster relationship. Well, there's a noted marriage researcher, a man by the name of John Gottman. And he has separated couples into two major groups, the masters and the disasters. And in his research, the masters were couples that were still happily married together after six years or more. The disasters, he writes, had either broken up or were chronically unhappy in their marriages. So what makes the difference between a master relationship and a disaster one. Well, in one of his studies, Mr. Gottman carefully observed 130 couples over a lengthy period of time. And he noticed that throughout the day, married partners made requests for connection. 
something that he called bids. For example, he writes, a husband who is a bird enthusiast might notice a goldfinch fly across the backyard. And he says to his wife, look at that beautiful bird. Now, he's not just commenting on the bird. He's requesting a response from his spouse, a bid, if you will, a sign of interest or support. He's hoping that they'll connect, however, momentarily over the bird. And so the wife now has a choice. She can respond by either turning toward or turning away from her husband. Though the the bird bid might seem relatively minor, it can actually reveal a lot about the health of the marriage. The bird was important for the husband, and the question is whether the wife recognizes and respects that. People who turned toward their partners in the study responded by engaging the bidder, showing interest or support in the bid. And those who turned away responded minimally or ignored the bid or even expressed contempt, something like, that's stupid or stop bothering me. Well, Gottman found that these so-called bidding interactions had profound effect on marital well-being. Couples who had divorced after six years of follow-up had turned toward bids just 33% of the time. But the couples who were still together after six years had turned toward bids 87% of the time. Nearly nine times out of ten, they were meeting their partner's emotional needs. Well, our message today is based on that title, Marriage Masters. Marriage Disasters. And it comes right out of the next section of the Gospel of Mark that we're looking at. As we work our way through the book, we come to chapter 10, where Jesus makes some comments and has some teaching on marriage and divorce. Now, one of the things that happens as we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, like we're doing with Mark's Gospel, is that we're forced to tackle topics that we might not necessarily choose on our own. Topics that might not feel good, but we nevertheless find it important to explore them. For instance, last week, in the end of chapter 9, we looked at Jesus' very sobering, severe teaching on the reality of sin and hell. And today, as we enter into chapter 10, Jesus has challenged his critics, has been challenged by his critics on the topic of marriage and divorce. Now, this is a topic that can perhaps bring up all kinds of feelings. Some of you are single and may wish you were married. Some of you are married and perhaps you wish you were single. And there are some who have lost your spouse. And this topic might be a bit difficult for you. As we encounter the topic of marriage and divorce, we recognize that there are many here in our church that have experienced the pain of divorce. You have sorrow and loss and grief and regret and anger, perhaps guilt or shame or fear, depression, confusion, disappointment, bitterness, or a combination of all of these and more. One author put it this way, there are few things in life more painful than divorce. It cuts to the depth of personhood unlike any relational gash. Well, you know, for a long time, the church at large has treated divorce as some sort of unforgivable sin. And if that has been your experience in the church, I am so sorry. We don't know always what you've been through or what you're going through right now. 
I really like what author Kyle Eidelman says in his book, Greater, Grace is Greater. He writes, people need us to raise a hand, not point a finger. They need to hear, me too. I'm broken too. And so today, whether you are single or married or divorced or remarried, God wants to help you make your present marriage, if you're in one, one that reflects his compassion and faithfulness. So let's begin in our passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus has now finished his ministry in Galilee, and he's making his final trip towards Jerusalem. And as he and his disciples head south, they enter Judea, and they cross the River Jordan into the land known as Perea. This is the traditional route from Galilee to Jerusalem, which involved a detour around the territory of Samaria. And as Jesus travels, crowds crush around him. And once again, Jesus takes time to teach the crowds. You know, there's always more to learn from the Lord, isn't there? And that's what we see in the Gospels. Well, as has happened many times before, Jesus' critics show up on the, on, the, on the scene. His continual critics, the Pharisees. And they're there on this day to set Jesus up with a question in order to trip him up. They're not searching for answers. They're not desirous to learn from the rabbi. Rather, they are out to entrap him. So let's continue in verse 2. In verse 2, Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, that word test is a unique one. It has the idea of testing in a malicious way. It's, it's the sense of trying to get somebody. And the tense indicates that they kept on asking. It wasn't a one-time question. They kept asking Jesus this question in hopes that he would say something to incriminate himself in front of these crowds. Now, some background information is helpful right at this point. Divorce was very common in the first century culture, but there was also a lot of controversy surrounding it. And in Jewish culture, there were two main schools of thought that were championed by two leading rabbis. Incidentally, by the way, in the first century, the option of divorce was available only for the husband. So sorry, ladies, you were out of it. So the two schools of thought are this. One was from Rabbi Shammai, and he taught that divorce was permitted only in the event of immorality. The other school of thought came from Rabbi Hillel, who taught that divorce was allowed for almost any reason. A man could divorce his wife if she was seen talking to another man. A man could divorce his wife if she put too much salt in his dinner. Or if she said something unkind about her mother-in-law. That could be it. Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years, have they? <laughs> As you might imagine, the school of Hillel was much more popular in culture. And the Pharisees followed this particular viewpoint as seen when they asked this same question of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, when they asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
You see, the Pharisees were hoping that Jesus would take a side, thus dividing the people and giving these religious leaders the ammo they needed to attack him. Now, there's one other cultural connection that's helpful to know as we look at this text. And that is that Jesus is now in the territory that's controlled by the man called Herod Antipas. This Roman governor, Herod, had himself committed adultery. He had divorced his wife. He had married another woman by the name of Herodias who had divorced her husband who just happened to be Herod's half-brother. You might remember a little about that story because John the Baptist confronted this Herod about his illegitimate marriage and he lost his head over it, literally. We read about that back in chapter 6 of Mark. We're in verse 18, it says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So perhaps the Pharisees are trying to force Jesus into saying something that they can report to Herod so that Herod will arrest and murder Jesus just like he did John the Baptist. If Jesus sided with the liberal school, suddenly the Pharisees would become conservatives themselves and say Jesus was going against the law of Moses. If he sided with the conservatives, they would say, oh, look, he's going against public opinion. And so the trap was set. If he condemned divorce, he could suffer the fate of John. If he condoned divorce, he would lose confidence of many of the people in the crowds. But I love, I love how Jesus turns the tables. He does this so often in the Gospels. He turns the tables on his critics by basically ignoring their question. Instead, he answers their question with a question of his own. That's in verse 3. Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? Now, Moses, of course, was their go-to man. And so Jesus took them to what Moses wrote. And by the way, let's make three quick observations about that. Number one, he takes them back to the Bible, back to Scripture. You know, it ultimately doesn't matter what two rabbis say, what public opinion says. We, as Christ followers, always need to ask, what does the Bible say? That's what Jesus does with his critics. Secondly, notice that he uses the word command. What does Moses command you to show this question cannot be settled by society or by whatever happens to be politically correct or culturally acceptable at the time. And then third, he personalizes it by using the word you. What did Moses command you? The Bible must always be applied personally. I love how Jesus moves people from just theory to the practical and the personal aspect of scripture. The question is not, what's your view? What's your opinion? But really it's, what about you? What are you doing to live your life according to scripture? Well, in verse four, the Pharisees answer Jesus's question. They summarize their interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four, by saying, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. You know, it's interesting that in response to Jesus' word command, what does Moses command you? They answer, well, he allows us. What are they doing? They're looking for a loophole. Jesus really calls them out in their sloppy Bible study method by 
pointing out that this passage that they are referencing in Deuteronomy 24 doesn't condone divorce, but actually controls divorce. Because divorce had become so rampant, even in the time of Moses, Moses gave some regulations. And he did that to make sure a wife who was divorced by her husband would not be left destitute. In order to protect these women, because only the men had the right to divorce, Moses told them that a wife must be given a certificate of divorce so that she would not be thrown out into the streets with no hope of remarrying. The permission for remarriage must be seen in the context of a divorce that had already taken place. Well, next, look at verse 5. And so Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he, that is Moses, wrote you this commandment. The word that Jesus uses here for hardness means a, a perverseness, an obstinacy, a stubbornness. I love what Jesus does next in the text as he turns the conversation really from, a, from a, a discussion about divorce, which is where they were wanting to go, and he turns the conversation towards the divine design of marriage because that's where God wants to go. And so he reframes the question from when is it okay to divorce to what does God say about marriage? The religious leaders are all concerned about what the current culture says about divorce. And, and when they consult the Bible, they look for something that lines up with what they already believe. That's a dangerous thing to do. Don't ever go to God's scriptures looking for ammunition to support your point of view. Rather, go to scripture to form your point of view. And so Jesus takes them and us all the way back to the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. Back to the beginning. In verse 6, Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. By the way, just as an aside, this verse from Genesis 1.27 speaks right into our current society's confusion about gender. It is a, a foundational biblical truth that God made humans as male and female. Now, I, I heard about a couple who were extremely eager to get their marriage license. But when they got to the courthouse, there was a, a sign, a hand-lettered sign on the door that read, Out to lunch! Back at one, think it over. I like that. Think it over. Well, I want us to see in this text that Jesus gives us four things to think over regarding biblical marriage in verses 7 through 9. Let's look first in verse 7, where Jesus tells us about leaving. Leaving. Jesus quotes from Genesis 2.24 when he declares, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The Hebrew word for leave is a very strong word and it means to cut off, to abandon, to forsake, to leave behind. Jesus is wanting us to see that when you get married, you are leaving your parents. And what that means is that you are severing the emotional umbilical cord because your loyalty now belongs first and foremost to your spouse. Your partner should never have to compete with your family. Now, leaving your parents doesn't mean ignoring them or not spending any time with them. Rather, it means that your marriage has created a new family 
and that new family must be of the highest priority. Second, Jesus talks about cleaving. Jesus says that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Once you leave, you then need to be committed to permanence. To hold fast literally means permanently glued together. All right, it's kind of like the idea of joining two things so tightly that they can't be separated without damaging both things. Like the idea of being welded or cemented together. It's a unique joining of two people into one unity. And I want us to see that this is a divine transaction. God does the gluing together so that the two become one. That is why divorce is so devastating to the people that are involved. You know, it's pretty easy to get married in our world, isn't it? It's the living together afterward that comes with the difficulties. I read about a, a, a couple that had been married over 35 years. And every day during those 35 years, the wife had given her husband a grapefruit for breakfast. And then one day, she, for whatever reason, didn't have any grapefruit. And she apologized profusely to her husband. The husband simply smiled and said, that's okay, honey. I never really liked grapefruit anyway. <laughs> Isn't that a great illustration? He wasn't going to let anything sever what God had put together, especially not a grapefruit. Leaving, cleaving. And then third, Jesus talks about weaving. Jesus states the goal of marriage in verse 8. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Once the leaving and the cleaving takes place, then the couple begins to experience weaving as they become one flesh. And that phrase, again, contains the idea of oneness. This unity is to be experienced emotionally and spiritually and physically. And so in God's marital math, one plus one equals one. God's objective for marriage is a loving relationship of oneness. And the idea of oneness affirms God's ideal for permanence in marriage. Now, to become one flesh is a lifetime process. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that it is a great mystery. That's because marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. In a contract, the two parties remain separate, kind of like oil and water. You take them and you shake them up in a bottle, and they look like they're mixed together, but left alone, what happens to that oil and water? they begin to eventually separate back into their original respective parts. That's a contract. However, in a covenant, the two become one and the same. I was thinking about an illustration like this and I thought, it's kind of like mashed potatoes. All right, Thursday morning, Thanksgiving morning, I was helping my wife in the kitchen and I was assigned to peel potatoes. And I peeled a bunch of potatoes for mashed potatoes. So this is where this thinking comes from, all right? A covenant is like mashed potatoes. You take a bunch of potatoes and you peel them and you cut them up and you put them in hot water to soften them up and then you mash them. 
and you mash them and you mix them and pretty soon they're all one. There's no separating those potatoes ever again. That is a covenant. What God brings together, his intent is that it would stay together. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. This describes what marriages are intended by God to look like. God's objective for marriage is a loving relationship of oneness. But sometimes our objective and God's objective are on a collision course, leading to a disaster rather than submission to the master. And when things don't go God's way for whatever reason, we get to our fourth point, grieving, grieving. The sanctity of marriage is grounded in God himself. And so to break what he has brought together is grievous to him. And it hurts us as well. Jesus said it this way in our text next in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so when God brings all those mashed potatoes together, his intent is they'd stay together. But what happens? What happens is sometimes we do things our way. Sometimes somebody else does things their way. We call that sin. And sin becomes involved in a relationship. And it begins to tear and to separate and to break down. The word joined that Jesus uses here let what God has joined together. Uh, it literally means to be yoked together. You know what a yoke is? That was used to, to maximize the work capacity of two animals. It ties them together. Sometimes marriage is even described as getting hitched, isn't it? Getting tied together. So I want you to think of two animals yoked together and hitched to a heavy wagon. Did you know that one Belgian draft horse is able to pull 8,000 pounds? That's pretty powerful, isn't it? However, if you take two of those horses and they're trained together and yoked together, do you know that they can pull 32,000 pounds? Two can accomplish four times as much as when they work as one, as an individual. That's the power of synergy. A good relationship has a good reward for its toil because when couples pull together, great things can happen. But when we pull against one another, grievous harm comes in to the marriage relationship. Harm to the couple themselves, to families, and yes, to our relationship with the Lord. That's because marriage matters to the Lord and therefore it must matter to us too. Well, after hearing Jesus and his conversation with these religious leaders, his disciples want to go deeper. They want to know more about this. And so we see this in verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So they don't quite pick up on everything. And they say, Jesus, tell us more. And so Jesus, as he often does, he declares the heart of God, and he does it with some boldness. Remember that what he says is strong because he has strong views about marriage. And so look at verses 11 and 12. And Jesus said to them, <clears throat> whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The use of adultery here directs the disciples right back to that command of God back in Exodus 20 where it says, you shall not commit adultery. That's where their mind would have went. By the way, I want you to notice that Jesus elevates the status of the wife here, giving her equal rights and responsibilities. Even even though the culture said only men can divorce, here Jesus clearly says that women are able to divorce. And so, as we conclude looking at this passage, I want to just give you six takeaways. What does this mean for us today? What do we want to take home with us? Number one, I think we want to take home this truth. God does not want divorce in our lives. He doesn't want it. Because of the unresolved problems it reveals and the pain and the wounds that it causes. We can't water that down or try try to act like God doesn't care. He does care. Number two, though, I want you to take this home. God does not hate divorced people. Many of you are divorced and are suffering or have suffered through incredible pain. And whatever the circumstances of your divorce were, was God does not hate you. He loves you deeply as his son, as his daughter. Number three. I want us to remember that divorce is not the only sin that God doesn't like. Sometimes we single out divorce and we forget what God says about a whole lot of other sins. Here's a a great passage to remember, Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run toward evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. Notice that divorce isn't in that list. But there's a whole lot of other things that are a lot more common that we might be involved in. Friends, we could say that God hates sin of every flavor. And the damage that it brings to our relationships with one another and with him. Number four, another takeaway, God does not forbid all divorce. There are some conspicuous exceptions given in Scripture, and time doesn't allow us to give an in-depth examination of all these. But, But please know that immorality and abandonment and adultery, these are all reasons given for in Scripture for divorce. Now, having said that, God's heart is always for reconciliation and restoration of the marriage covenant. Jesus loves to put hurting hearts back together again. So if you need further scripture references or you need help on this topic, if you're struggling with this idea of divorce, you want some more reading, some more direction, I hope that you'll ask me, that you'll ask one of our elders so that we can help you through this process. Number five takeaway, deal with any unfinished business. Perhaps you need to ask for forgiveness from God. Or ask for and extend forgiveness to your former spouse. Or seek reconciliation with your children. Or perhaps you're a child of divorce and maybe it's time or long past time for you to make peace with your parents. And then take away number six. The church has not always been the healing community that it should be. I recognize that the church in general has not necessarily been the oasis of compassion or understanding that we should be, especially in this area of divorce. 
And in some instances, the church has been overly harsh on individuals who have been stung by divorce. My prayer is that this church, this local church, Garden Way Church, that we can be an exception, that we can be a place that offers grace and support to those who are hurting from the experience of divorce. Friends, we must know and we must understand that God's grace is always enough. God's grace is greater than your guilt. His mercy covers whatever happened in that past marriage. His offer of hope and comfort and guidance is available to any who would choose to receive it. Through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for all of our failures, and there is healing for all who would seek it out. God's grace is enough because we are covered by his love. So, whether you are a marriage master with years or decades of a great marriage, or if you've been involved in a marriage disaster of brokenness or disappointment through divorce, know this, God loves you so much. Jesus died for you, no matter if you're single or married or divorced or remarried. And you too can have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. That is the truth of God's message. Let it be your truth as well. Let it shape your thinking as you grapple with these difficult topics. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you, God, that you are a God of grace and mercy. And Father, we thank you that we walk with you. And when we walk with you, Father, that we are enshrouded and covered by your goodness, by your love. And Father, that you give us a hope greater than anything this world has to offer. Father, thank you that you are an expert at taking us from brokenness and disappointment in our lives. Father, you take the hurts from the past and God, you give us a preferred future, no matter what our past is, because of Jesus. We rejoice in this truth. Father, help us to live this truth each and every day. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand together as the ladies lead us in our closing song. <laughs>